So I ask you the question this morning, why in the world should I become part of the church anyway? Is it worth it? That question may be one of the most plaguing questions of the day. It may also be one of the most personally and spiritually probing questions facing many truth seekers and Christians alike. Years ago, Robert Bella in his book, Habits of the Heart, said that 81% of the American people say that they can arrive at their own religious views without regard to a body of believers. That's a high percentage, isn't it? 81%. In a Gallup poll taken on the subject of the church, one respondent replied, I am my own church. I am, those, those words, I am my own church. I'm becoming more and more convinced that without a doubt we in the church have undergone and are currently undergoing a widespread and genuine identity crisis. Ask anyone inside the church or out to describe the church's mission or even define what the church is. And I think you'll be offered a multitude of opinions that may or may not come close to the truth. As someone once pointed out, it's no surprise that non-believers don't really know much about the church's identity or, or mission. But when Christians themselves are undergoing a widespread identity crisis, then we're in big, big trouble. You agree? That's the understatement of the year. Do you know why you're here today? You know why you're here today? Why are you here today? I can't hear you. <laughs> why are you here today? Fellowship. What else? Worship. Growing Christ. I heard somebody say get education. Ah, thank you. Yes, all of those things are true. Ultimately, we're here to glorify God, aren't we? Many people are confused about why they're in church on Sunday mornings or in church at all. Is this just a place to be on Sunday morning? Or is it more than that? Is it a matter of habit, duty, tradition? In other words, if you were asked, would your response be something like, well, I always go to church on Sunday. I don't know why, really. We just do. Maybe it's a matter of guilty conscience. It could be that you're like, you like the music. Maybe you like the fellowship. Maybe you're spiritually hungry. You want to be fed. I heard kind of those things coming from you. In light of that, would it be fair to say that at least some people, in a spiritual sense, view the church on about the same par as you do your favorite CD or your favorite restaurant? In other words, do we really understand the importance of the church as Christ has revealed it to us. Let's be honest this morning, okay? My deep conviction is that the average church attender, desperately, myself included, could use a dose of healthy biblical truth on what the church really is and what Christ is calling it to do. Hmm? Loyalty to the church today is all too often motivated by a consumer mindset or a McChurch mentality, as some people have said. 
You know, there's a new study out today, the largest growing population right now in, in, among church people, 31% or something like that, they identify themselves as the duns. You know what the duns are? The duns are done with church. They're not done with God, but they're done with church. And there's another population that's growing that's coming up right behind them. You know what they're called? They're called the almost duns. Seriously, there are books written on this. And they're right on, on the cusp. They're right on the edge of walking out of the church. And, and these people are not liberals. These people are not, you know, your typical, I don't need church type. These are conservative people that have been in the church for years and years and years and have become disillusioned with it. The almost duns. And there, in some regard, there is a whole group of people that have this consumer mindset. You come, you look, you take what you want, you get your fill, and then you leave. That's what I did last night at a restaurant, and we went out to dinner with my son, went to the salad bar. What do you do? You go, you look it all over, you pick and choose what you want, what you like, you fill your plate, you go back to your table, you eat it all up, and luckily, if you're, if you're not, not too stuffed, you can eat your main course. Right? People pick and choose what suits their particular tastes, and they move on from church to church. The church consequently becomes another retail outlet through which people flow looking for the best deal, the lowest cost, with a pleasurable variety of choices. Now you're saying, boy, he's pretty cynical about the church, isn't he? No, I'm not. That's the point of this message. But there are a lot of people that feel this way. So what about commitment? So what about loyalty? So what about engagement in the body of Christ, right? Many articles have been written regarding this consumer approach. George Barna stated some time ago that the average adult thinks that belonging to a church is good for other people but represents unnecessary baggage and bondage for himself. That's a quote. That that is completely contrary to the New Testament teaching about the church. Amen? Membership in the invisible church without commitment to the local church assembly is never contemplated in the Bible. I'll challenge you with that. If you can find a place where it is, then you come and talk to me and I'll, I'll, I'll definitely look at that. But I, as I can see it, as I study it, Membership in the invisible church, the universal church, is never contemplated, without a commitment to a local assembly, is never contemplated in the Bible. Christianity is more than just a private transaction with Jesus Christ. Much more than that. Commitment to the visible church is absolutely important. Why? Because it is the primary means by which Christ is manifested to the world. Let me say that again. The local church is the primary means by which Christ is manifested to the community. You know why? Because we are the body of Christ. If you have a million and one excuses as to why you're not committed to the church, and you wouldn't because you're here, right? Then a person probably doesn't understand the relationship of Jesus Christ to his church. Let me put it another way. You cannot be 
totally committed to Christ and be marginally committed to his church. The two are inseparable. Genuine commitment to Christ creates a genuine concern for the church. Now, as I launch this new series on the church, I want to begin by em- emphasizing the necessity of, what, uh, of knowing what it is that we come into when we become part of the church of Jesus Christ, and we want to know it from His point of view. So for these first two messages, I want to look at just exactly kind of what we come into as the church, and then the next following few messages, we're going to look exactly at what Jesus Christ has to say to the church today through the seven churches of Revelation. Wouldn't it be nice to sit down over coffee with Jesus and say, Jesus, tell me, what do you think about the church? What would you like the church to know today? Wouldn't that be a great conversation? I don't think so. Yes, it would, but we might not like what we hear. And we have this word in Revelation to the seven churches that's representative, I think, of all the church throughout history And Jesus is speaking through what he spoke to them to us. So if we want to know what Jesus has to say to us today, we're going to find out through those churches, through the Word. Amen? But for right now, let's look at Hebrews and what Hebrews has to say about what it means to come into the body of Christ kind of uh, through the back door. We're really going to be talking about the gospel and its contrast to the law. But it's going to show us from Jesus' point of view, from the writer of Hebrews' point of view, what the church really is. You know, unless we embrace this accurate and true view of what the church means to Christ, we will never have a healthy view of it ourselves. Never. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. I love this passage of Scripture. especially because it's so picturesque, if you think about it in your mind, okay? Look at verse 22. Well, let me back up and give you some context. I'm going to start in verse 18. We're looking at the contrast of Sinai versus Zion. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. That's what the Old Testament saints came to at Sinai, right? For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Oh, that is a mouthful of theology. This text is uniquely New Testament in perspective. In fact, the writer's express purpose is to show the complete contrast of what New Testament believers have entered into through their relationship with Christ as opposed to what the Old Testament law could never offer. 
And there are seven significant truths outlined here that I believe define our experience every time we gather together as a church. True, these are the realities of what every Christian comes into and upon, genuine belief in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord and as members of His universal body. But on a smaller scale, kind of a microcosm, they are also the realities of every local church assembly or should be. They are what we are actively encountering right now, even as I speak. Right now. Almost guarantee that most of us don't regularly look at the church this way when we come here or when we gather together. So here's the burning question for this week and for next week that I want you to kind of keep in your mind. Here it is. What do we come to when we come into the church. What do we come to when we come into the church? And I'm not talking about the building, okay? What do we come to? Well, the first thing that I see here in this verse, verse, verse 22, is that we come into citizenship. Say it with me, citizenship. And specifically, the royalty of heavenly citizenship. But you have come to Mount Zion, it says. The writer says we've come to Mount Zion. Symbolically, this is extremely important for us to know. Why? Because Mount Zion was the Jebusite stronghold that David conquered in the seventh year of his reign. It was here that he placed the Ark of the Covenant. Not only did this become David's royal residence, but for all intents and purposes, it became viewed as the earthly dwelling place of God. Get that in your head. The earthly dwelling place of God. Psalm 132, verses 13 to 18 says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow, and I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. That's what the Old Testament says about Zion. It is from Zion that Christ will literally reign during the millennial kingdom here on the earth. Zion in this context is a spiritual picture of Christ's kingdom as he rules and reigns in the hearts of men and women who are his true followers. Amen? At Mount Sinai, there was law, and there was judgment, and there was death. But at Mount Zion, the writer says, there is forgiveness, and there's mercy and grace. And so as the church, followers of Christ, have come to Mount Zion, the spiritual Jerusalem, a place of royal residence, a stronghold of protection, a center of pure worship. Somebody said we come here to worship. That's exactly right. The earthly dwelling place of God. You believe that? You believe that when we gather together as a church body, we come to the earthly dwelling place of God? I'm not hearing any to the affirmative here. Is that because you don't agree with me? Or is that because you're so in awe of the fact that we are together, the earthly dwelling place of God, that you cannot speak? 
Because that's what we should be, right? I lay my hand upon my mouth, Job said. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my, roof of my mouth. We have come to Mount Zion, the writer says. The church is the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16. And it doesn't just represent it. That's the thing we have to get to our heads. It doesn't just represent it. It is sanctuary. A refuge where love and forgiveness and grace are practiced and received. Yes? Is that how you view the church? If we did, maybe it would, we would operate differently in some cases. How many times have you and I consciously thought that coming to church was coming into all of those things? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And the you there is plural. It's not individual in that particular text. It's plural, signifying the gathered church together, you, and meaning all of us. As Old Testament Zion was the earthly meeting place of the tribes of Israel, so the heavenly Zion is the meeting point of all the people of God in Christ. It's a place in which we experience God's provision, His protection, and His presence. Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? By the way, the writer of Hebrews says something else. He says that we have already come to that place. Look at it. But you, what's it say? Have come, right? You have come to Mount Zion. We've already come to that, spiritually speaking. We are ambassadors for Christ here on earth, but we are already citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem in spirit. Amen? Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Philippians 3.20, you know this verse. For our citizenship is in heaven, is peculiar use of the word here. It looks backward as if it has already been established. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, it's interesting that it says that we wait for Jesus from a heavenly citizenship. Isn't that strange? Have you ever picked that verse apart like that? We're already residents there. If you are in Christ, you are royalty. Coming to church ought to remind us of that fact. Not that we're to be self-righteous about it, but rather we should rejoice together in it. Right? Hey, you're a prince. You're a princess. Some people act like princesses. You know? Some people act like princes. But we're all in this together, aren't we? Not one over above the other. 
We're all brothers and sisters, it says in another metaphor. But in this particular one, it says we're royalty. We are recognized citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and as such, we have all the rights and privileges of residence. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen for you. That, behind me, is Menzies Castle. That probably means nothing to you, but when, he, when I went to Scotland, my, my daughter-in-law, married to my son, guess what her maiden name is? Menzies. Her dad's a direct descendant. That's their castle. It's not really theirs. Ancestrally, we went and visited that place. Now, my wife, my, my daughter-in-law's father can get in and out of that place anytime he wants to for free. He has rights. Guess what? His kids can't. He can, but his kids can't. Perspective, folks, is everything, right? We need to start seeing ourselves not as citizens of the earth trying to get to heaven, but as citizens of heaven navigating our way through life on earth. We need a new perspective, an Abraham perspective, to put it mildly. As Christians, we can realize what Abraham and Sarah and the Old Testament saints were constantly looking for. Back up a a few verses in chapter 11 in Hebrews, uh, 11 verses 10 and 16. What was Abraham looking for? The city which has its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. They were looking for a better country that is a heavenly one. That is a great definition of the church here on earth, right? The city which has its foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's a great definition of the church on earth. When will we start believing that? When will we start living that? When we gather as the church, not only should we realize that we've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, but one of the most striking truths that's stated here is that we have come to the city of the living God. The city of the living God. A living God signifies a living church. Amen? It possesses vitality. It's alive and it's functioning vigorously. As one commentator has observed, the mention of the living God emphasizes the thought that the city is no static affair. It is the city of a vital, dynamic, living being, one who is doing things. Amen? Is he doing things in your life? He's doing them in mine. Sometimes it's not always pleasant. What's he doing in your life? I think we need to get it through our heads and into our hearts that the church is a living organism. It's not just a dead organization. It's a living organism. Otherwise, on the outside, it may have all the appearance of life to the world around us, yet within its walls it will be dead for lack of spiritual power. We don't want that, do we? Fiery evangelist Billy Sunday. It's a great, I love this story. He used to relate to this story of a well-known town atheist who was seen running vigorously to a burning church building intent on helping others subdue the flames that was on fire. 
A neighbor watching the whole event said to him, well, this is something new. I never saw you so excited to go to church before, to which the atheist replied, well, this is the first time I've ever seen the church on fire. (laughs) What a convicting statement that is. It's convicting. Yeah, that's right. Let her burn. Let her burn all night, right? I recall that Jesus had a more convicting statement than that, which we will look at in much more detail in the coming weeks. But writing, just to give you a cursory preview, writing to the sleeping, fruitless church at Sardis, Jesus says this in Revelation 3, verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, if you were sitting over coffee with Jesus and he said that, I think my coffee would be like, what? Strengthen what remains, Jesus says, and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. As you can see, we're in for some good stuff in the seven churches of Revelation and some not-so-good stuff. You want to know what sets the church on fire? Spirit-filled people. Not angry-filled people. Spirit-filled people. People who burn in their hearts for God being part of a thriving, growing body of believers, of people called out from a dead existence in the world. We've been called out from a dead existence in the world, haven't we? Amen? Why would we want to go back to that? A live church is not static. It's dynamic. It lives. It breathes. It grows. It moves. It will never stay still. It will never get stale as long as the Holy Spirit is involved. John chapter 3, verse 8 says this, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Amen? Living church moves with the times, yet maintains its message, its solid message. It knows the difference between tradition and traditionalism. Tradition is the living faith of those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still alive. Traditionalism will kill a church. It's a rut. You know what a rut is, right? A rut is one step removed from a grave because a rut is nothing. You know, a grave is just a rut with the two ends kicked out. I mean, put in, I should say. In the church, we have come to the city of the living God, the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. We are living citizens of a living kingdom. We have the privileges of royal citizenship. Secondly, we've got something else. It's not just citizenship that we come to when we come to the church. We come to celebration. Celebration. And it's the glory of angelic celebration. Verse 22 again, the second part of that verse. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. 
The NIV translates the true sense of this phrase very accurately. It says, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Imagine the idea that when we gather as the church, we are in the company of thousands upon thousands of angels. What an incredible thought that is, right? Could be a little scary. You ever think that when we come together every Sunday that we might possibly sit among an innumerable community of angels celebrating and worshiping the Father? Ever think that way? Could they be all around us, right next to you, sitting in between you in the pews, hovering over our heads? No, you can't see them, but, tonight, but the thought that they're there in holy array, praising and singing together with us truly should change the tenor of our gathering, wouldn't you say? Would you like a picture? Revelation 5, verse 11 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. But to be honest, I know you're thinking, you're thinking, that text takes place in heaven. Some of you may have picked up on that. Is there any scriptural support at all for the fact that angels may be worshiping among us in our earthly assemblies? Well, I have searched the scriptures high and low for hard evidence that angels may indeed be worshiping with us. And frankly, I could not find any concrete evidence of that. However, I have found evidence to strongly imply that angels are indeed present and clearly observing us and are also ministering to us. Angels may indeed move in and out among us, as Hebrews 1.14 indicates, as ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That's us. Hebrews 13.2 says that we can entertain angels without even being aware of it. Luke 15.10 speaks to the fact that there is joy in the presence of angels of, of God over one sinner who comes to repentance. 1 Corinthians 11.10, in this very difficult context in which Paul cautions the Corinthian women of refusing to cover their heads in the church gatherings as a sign of humility and as an attitude of submissiveness, seems to imply that angels who observe the conduct of believers in their church gatherings may be offended who themselves are in submission to God. So they're observing us according to that text. 1 Timothy 5.21 is by far the most clear indication of the presence of angels among us, in my opinion. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles. So that's what the Scripture has to say. You can form your own conclusions. Yet beyond this, I cannot go. I don't want to mislead you. Maybe it's going too far in suggesting to you that an angel is sitting right next to you, in between you and your spouse. Yet on the other hand, there is very real possibility that it could be true. 
The bottom line, however, is that physically, as the church, we will one day be in heaven worshiping God in the midst of a glorious angelic celebration. And positionally, according to Hebrews, positionally, that is a reality now. It's already taken place. Therefore, whenever we praise and worship the Lord, we can be assured that myriads of angels accompany us with one voice and one spirit in worship. Suffice it to say, as one author notes, the vastness of angelic ministry just cannot be measured. Their numbers are too countless, their ministries so varied, their natures so refined that ordinary man has difficulty even grasping that they could be involved with him. They're engaged in spiritual battles, pushing back the forces of evil from the children of God. We may never meet them, see them, or even sense their presence in our lives, but we have the testimony of His Word that they are there. And according to Deuteronomy 33.2 and Galatians 3.19, myriads of angels were on Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments. They were there. In Daniel's vision of heaven, he saw that thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him in Daniel 7.10. As true worshipers of God through the saving power of the gospel, we are numbered with an incredible heavenly choir when we worship as the church. However, I need to caution you. Although these heavenly beings may be observing us and ministering to us in the church, we do not come here to worship angels. We come to worship God with the angels. So friends, what do we come into as the church? We come into the royalty of heavenly citizenship. We come into the uh, glory of angelic celebration. And thirdly, this morning, another C. We come into community. We come into community, specifically the company of a privileged community, verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. I've often said this would be the greatest name for a church. Put on a church sign. Church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven who meet temporarily at Fayette. It's a big sign. Well, I like that church of the firstborn. It's much more biblical than, well, there's a lot of churches out there with titles that I think are kind of unbiblical. Church of the firstborn is not one of them. Church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that is what we are as true believers in Christ, you know. We are literally called out firstborn ones. That's what the text literally says. Called out firstborn ones. When Christ used the term church, he didn't have a building in the back of his mind, I don't think. He had people in mind, amen? Ecclesia, an assembly of people, all kinds of people, a community of people. Henry Nowen wants to find a community. You'll get a kick out of this one. Community is a place where the person you least want to live with always lives. And for all the talk about the church being a family, how many of your families always have it on the positive end every single day growing up? You always had like 100% everybody was joyful, everything was grand, everything was great. Anybody were raised in a family like that? I didn't think so. 
Yeah, the church is a family, and we have our own problems, right? But I think Nowen's definition is pretty good about this community. There are people that we have a hard time living with, but that's okay. That, you think those apostles got along real well with Jesus, those 12? No, we know they didn't because it's right in the Scripture that they argued all the time. I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. They even introduced the mother into the mix. Jesus, I want you to reserve these two seats for my two sons. Imagine that. We're human. The biblical word church literally means called out ones. When Jesus used the word, he wasn't thinking of the northern New England idea of a bunch of independent people claiming to have a relationship with Christ. He was thinking about a community of believers, right? A body whose members interact and depend upon each other, the same one Paul portrays in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. We've got to reclaim that image. Rick Warren once put his finger square on the issue when he wrote, any organ that is detached from the body will not only miss what it was created to be, but it will also shrivel and die quickly. The same is true for Christians who are uncommitted to any specific congregation. It's true. It is a non-biblical view that sees the Christian faith primarily as a solo experience. What Christ communicated in the Gospels is not the gospel of Jesus and me. Far from it. That's the entry point. But while the basis for salvation is an individual and personal faith relationship with Jesus Christ, Christianity and the church includes way more than that, wouldn't you say? Amen? Way more than that. The Bible says that we're members of one another, according to Romans 12, 5. Members of one another. Nowhere that I know of in the entire testament of the Scriptures is an individual ever referred to as the body of Christ. Can't find it. Nor is the term church ever used in reference to a single person. You individually are not the body of Christ. We together are the body of Christ. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? There are two things we cannot do alone, says Paul Turnier. I would disagree with him on this, but makes for good preaching. Right? <laughs> two things we cannot do alone. It makes the point here. One is to be married. Two is to be a Christian. We are God's new community on earth. Amen? Amen? Read Matthew 16, 16 to 18. Read that again. When Peter made his timeless confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Peter, you are a blessed man. Man, you're a blessed man because my Father revealed this to you. Now you, Peter, will be rock solid, not only in name, but in your soul as well. Now, Peter, I will build you. Was that what Jesus said? Negative. He didn't say that. He said that he would build his church. And it is the church against, against which Satan's gates will not prevail. Amen? 
A well-known author has said that when we confess Christ, God's response is to bring us into His church. We become part of His called-out people. When we become followers of Christ, we become members of His church, and our commitment to the church is indistinguishable from our commitment to Him. Let me say that again. Our commitment to the church is indistinguishable to our, from our commitment to Him. Now, when we come to church, we don't come to a building. We come to people, firstborn ones. We have a common heritage if we're believers in Christ. According to Romans 8, 28 and Colossians 1, 15 and 18, it all says that Jesus is the firstborn one among many brethren, right? We are heirs if we follow Christ. We have an inheritance. All of us possess the rights of a firstborn Show me your hand this morning if you are the baby in your family. Wow. There's a lot of you out there. I want to give you some encouragement today. I'm the oldest. See, I'm not the baby in my family. That has its drawbacks too. You may have been born the baby of your family. You may have always gotten the short end of everything because of an older brother or sister. You're all going, yeah. (laughs) But do you realize that in Christ, you will never, ever, ever have to settle for spiritual hand-me-downs? Second best or leftovers. You have the privilege of being an heir to the kingdom, you are a firstborn one. You possess the rights of a firstborn child, firstborn son, firstborn daughter. You will receive the blessings of a true child. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Revelation 21, 7 says this, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Friends, if we have overcome the world by placing our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, our names, as it says here, have been enrolled in heaven. Enrolled in heaven. Ever gone to a packed hotel or an exclusive restaurant and tried to get in without a reservation? Anybody ever have that experience? I have. And then you hear from the guy, the host, right? Uh, Sorry, I can't find your name. And there you stand before the book in front of all these people, embarrassed, frustrated, angry, right? Some people reach in their pocket for a 50. (laughs) When you stand before Christ, if your name is not in the book, it's going to be much worse than that. It's not going to matter how much you bribe the doorman. It's not going to happen. It won't matter how impressive your credentials are. You will not be able to talk your way in. The only thing that will matter is if your name is inscribed there. And my question to you, is your name there? Is it there? Revelation 20, 
Beginning in verse 11, says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Church is not a restaurant for the religious folks. It's not a hotel for the holy. It's an assembly of people called out from the world whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Coming into the church means coming into the royalty of heavenly citizenship. It means joining with the angels in a celebration, angelic celebration. It means coming into the company of a very privileged community. And I'm not saying exclusive because the door's wide open for anybody to come. But it is privileged once you come because you're recognized as a firstborn. You're recognized as an heir. And you know how you get there? You get there by coming to Jesus. For I'm the way, Jesus says. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the way. Why? Because he paved the way. He's the one who sacrificed himself on the cross, spilled his blood for every single sin that you and I have ever committed. And he did it willingly. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. But the the Scripture says very clearly, for everyone who receives him to them, he gives the right to become children of God. And we don't have a dead Savior either. We have a living Savior who rose from the dead on the third day, amen? And he opened that door wide. And he tore that curtain from top to bottom. And he gave us free access into the throne room of grace so that there we can find grace and mercy and help in time of need. Amen? And we all need it, whether you're in the community or not. But if you're not in the community, you really need it. You need to come to Christ. Now, we've only scratched the surface today, identifying three of the seven realities listed by the writer of Hebrews that we come to. Next week, we'll unpack four more. But listen, let me just ask you this. When you came to church today, did you consider all that that means? Just imagine for a moment what our church could be if we all realized what it truly is.